All right, we are back and would like to note for those who may be interested in a very nice bike ride that the city of Fremont, and I presume the city of Union City, and I presume the community of Sonol, are collaborating to close off Niles Canyon this coming Sunday, September 24th. Cars will be prohibited from passing through the seven-mile passage between 8 a.m. and 2 p.m., For that six hours, it will be bicycles and pedestrians only. It is a pretty piece of highway. It's Highway 84, which starts in San Gregorio Beach and I think winds up in Sacramento. It's a little piecemeal. But if you did want to take an unusual route from, say, Sacramento to the coast, that's that's an option. Niles Canyon has quite a role to play in movie history. We talked in this program, I don't know, many years ago with David Keene film historian from the Niles SNA Film Museum, who uh, is an authority and has written a book about the cowboy movie star Bronco Billy Anderson. Between the years of like 1913 and 1916, Bronco Billy shot like 300 Western one-reeler and two-reeler silent films up in Niles Canyon and was highly influential in everything that followed. From Tom Mix to John Wayne to the John Ford Westerns, well, a lot of it really started in Niles Canyon. Bronco Billy made quite a success of it. He was so prosperous by 1915, he was able to hire a young actor away from Max Sennett of Keystone Pictures, of the famous Keystone Cops, that uh, young actor, by the time Bronco Billy was through with him at SNA Studios, was probably the most famous film actor in the world. His name, Charlie Chaplin. That iconic bit of uh, cinematography where the tramp, in the movie The Tramp, forlornly walks away. The camera closes down around him. Well, that's filmed a mile into the canyon, in Niles Canyon. Pretty place, a lot of history. You might want to think about pedaling your bicycle through it. A friend was interested in taking a look at Niles Canyon last week, so I I, I drove her through it and explained some of the history I just told you about. And uh, we wound up in Pleasanton, which is a pleasant enough little town. It's the the site of the Alameda County Fair. It is a bit of a mini Carmel these days with some art galleries here and there sprinkled with some very nice restaurants. Very quaint, very charming. And on the day we were there, very bizarre in that I have never in my life, seen as many young techies staring down at their phones walking around the streets of the town. Everybody seemed to have their eyes on a little screen. I mean, like, nine people walk past you, nine people looking at a screen. It turned out there was apparently some kind of video game going on where people were able to, I I don't know, is this Pokemon Go? I, I wasn't sure. Something where items on your phone would pop at up pop out at you behind a tree when you're walking around. Anyway, scores, if not hundreds, of numbskulls were walking around doing this. Keep in mind, pretty, quaint, little town. Lots to look at, lots to take in, lots to enjoy. Knuckleheads are all walking down the street, staring down at their phones, with connectors from their phone into their pockets for chargers, because God forbid they'd run out of juice in the middle of looking for some Pac-Man-like figure lurking in an alley. Anyway, this puts me into the editorial page of Sierra Magazine, the publication from the Sierra Club. In letters to the editor, referred to a previous article about uh, getting outdoors and enjoying beauty, natural beauty. It's a radical concept. 
A man named John Kilborn wrote the magazine from Michigan to note that in the university class which he teaches, Foundations of the Human Movement Sciences, his students read the chapter The Nature Prescription from the book The Nature Principle. Students were assigned, they were assigned to go to a favorite place in nature with no technology for at least 45 minutes. And when they return, write a short essay on the experience. Yes, it's hard to believe anybody could go 45 minutes without technology, but apparently these students are up to the task. Noted Mr. Kilborn, most of their reflections fill me with sadness. Often they share how difficult it was for them to be separated from their phones. Some actually experience symptoms of withdrawal, such as increased anxiety. Typically it takes students several minutes to settle in before they can experience their natural surroundings. He did note that many of the students comment on how the experience brought back memories of their childhood when they often played outdoors with friends, enjoying the sights, smells, and sounds of their environment. He noted that as he graded and returned their papers to them, he reminds them to get a regular dose of vitamin N, meaning nature. And I got to say that uh, yours truly got a shocking dose of nature when the day before I ventured over to Pleasanton, that pleasant little town, and uh, took a tour in today's Union City of the old town of Alvarado. I believe that my grandpa was the only dentist in Alvarado, although his office was in Hayward for many decades. I spent a lot of time there as a kid and uh, called a friend I still have from my youth to see if she'd be interested in going on this walking tour. Fortunately, she was interested and given her encyclopedic knowledge of this little town, she was a wonderful addition to the tour guide. Now, if you travel to the East Bay today, you will find that Alameda Creek, which runs through Niles Canyon, then hits the plains of the East Bay before it empties into San Francisco Bay. It used to flood pretty regularly. Sometime in the late 60s, early 70s, the Army Corps of Engineers took on that issue and well, they made damn sure that Alameda Creek's never going to flood again. It's not quite as ugly as that culvert down in Los Angeles is that used to be the L.A. River. But I have to say that in 50 years of recovery time, it's still not uh, exactly a... Well, it's, it's not the American River Parkway, that I can tell you. But back in the day, meaning like back in the 1800s, evidently Alameda Creek had several branches. Evidently, one of these branches explains a mystery for me that goes back to childhood. My folks used to refer to Alvarado Niles Road as the Creek Road. Alvarado Niles is still with us. You've probably seen it as you've driven down Highway 880 in the East Bay. And by the way, I hope it stays with us a long time. Knuckleheads down in Milpitas decided to rename Dixon Landing Road the Barack Obama Parkway. The city fathers explained that, well, Barack Obama did spend one night in Milpitas. And he, quote, he almost certainly took Dixon Landing as he was driving around. So they're going to name it after him. Anyway, somewhere along today's Alvarado Niles Road, there evidently was one branch, maybe a substantial branch, maybe the main branch of Alameda Creek. It turns out, according to our historian that took us around town, uh, the little town of Alvarado grew up from three towns that were created next to what was called the Devil's Elbow of Alameda Creek in the early 1850s, right after the Gold Rush era. 
a man named John Horner built a wharf and warehouse in what is now Alvarado. Now, for me, looking back many decades to my youthful summers, which a great deal of time was spent in Alvarado, uh, there was no creek. There was no possible landing. There was no place for loading a boat in the town. You were like miles from the current outlines of Alameda Creek. That wasn't the case back in the 1850s. This man, John Horner, built a wharf and a warehouse. He and his brother laid out eight square blocks for what they called Union City, named after Union, a steamboat owned by the Horners. A man named Henry Smith built two warehouses just east of Union City and named his settlement New Haven, after his hometown of New Haven, Connecticut. A man named A.M. Church built the first store in New Haven, and soon others built and settled in New Haven. Then a third settlement came along just south of both Union City and New Haven. It was called Alvarado. It was named after the former Mexican governor of California, Juan Bautista Alvarado. Two lawyers from San Francisco, Strode and Jones, bought land and laid out the town of Alvarado. Because of the large amount of produce that was produced in Washington Township, today's Fremont, Newark, and Union City, a lot of that produce was being shipped to San Francisco through Union City Landing. The little three towns were considered the business center of the East Bay. When Alameda County was created in 1853, New Haven was the county seat. It held that position for, well, only three years. Still, <laughs> it was the county seat for three years. The county courthouse was a room in the second-story store built by A.M. Church and owned by Henry Smith. The small towns eventually merged and became Alvarado. Note the little booklet put out by Fremont's Museum of Local History. After its early heyday, Alvarado steadily grew and acquired residents from a variety of ethnic backgrounds. Chinese, Mexican, Filipino, and Japanese were all major ethnic groups that settled in Alvarado and founded communities. During the tour, I looked at my childhood friend and said, yeah, and there were Spanish and Portuguese also. Although, when it is everybody got there, I couldn't say. Anyway, it, it turned out that where this landing was was on some property that, that my, my family owned. It was <laughs> There was no place for a wharf uh, back when I saw this piece of property. So uh, how it is they filled that in, I don't know. But fill it in, evidently they did. Rather imperfectly, I gather, because I know that in 1955, the whole town was up to its doorsteps in water. This got me thinking of how it is they've replumbed areas uh, all over California so they could be built upon. Nobody wants to be flooded. I must say, when it comes to the story about flooding and building, it's pretty hard to top the uh, discussions we've had on this program in the past about the Natomas Basin in Sacramento. Real estate interests a couple of decades ago decided that, uh, well, they were just salivating over the possibility of buying that low-lying land and building on it. Never mind that it is the second riskiest area in the United States for flooding after New Orleans. Anyway, if you drive around areas in the Central Valley or the East Bay or probably anywhere in California, you will note that uh, the problem of drainage was dealt with by, you know, carving swaths through the land, sometimes lining it, sometimes not. A lot of the end products of this are pretty disgusting. Anyway, I hope to return to this topic uh, with, with my childhood friend in the weeks to come to talk a little bit more about uh, uh, how this, this small town is kind of a, you know, any town USA for uh, the America that's disappearing. My pal was able to relate stories going back to the 1960s and perhaps even 50s from extreme youth, which, let's face it, is a half century ago.
I told her, you've got to write some of these stories down or talk to the historians at the museum so they can, uh, you know, get some of this stuff down on paper. She advised me as we were walking around that uh, as a child, she was told not to walk on the north side of the street west of the church. And the reason was that, well, there was a a rather unsavory community there. And, well, uh, let me just quote from, from the guide here. The general area covered from the post office to just past the historical museum was known as Chinatown. It consisted of a number of small, tightly built shacks that were occupied by Chinese workers and businesses such as a laundry, a bordello, and gambling dens. She assured me that as late as the 60s, there were opium dens in that part of town. The buildings were probably built in the 1860s or 1870s. A fire raged through Chinatown in 1904, but the buildings were quickly repaired. By the 1920s, the population had changed from Chinese to mostly Mexican, giving it the name Little Tijuana. Starting in 1911, efforts were made to rid Alvarado of gambling, illegal liquor, and narcotics. In 1927, Alameda County District Attorney Earl Warren was successful in his abatement proceedings against the owner, Edward Farley. The county removed all residents, including Wu Lee, who operated a small store. The buildings were soon burned down. Well, the historical museum probably has all that right, but uh, something got rebuilt because (laughs) as late as the 1960s, my friend was told, don't go on that side of the street. She said, oh, yeah, there were prostitutes there and, you know, illegal gambling and opium dens. And I'm thinking, man, I, I had a sheltered childhood. I was quite unaware of any of that. Anyway, hope you find that kind of stuff interesting, dear listener. I suspect you do, but it, it would help if you dropped us a line at info at radioparallax.com to share your thoughts or perhaps first-hand observations of some of this. I don't think we've done any bashing of technologies since our summer hiatus, have we, Mr. McMillan? Not too much. So let's do some. I'm looking at the September 20th edition of The Week. Under What's New in Tech, we have these two hair-raising items. Number one, damning revelations about ties to sex offender Jeffrey Epstein has forced the resignation of the head of the MIT Media Lab. This is an article by Angela Chen in MIT Technology Review, noting that the Media Lab is one of the top centers for the study of technology in the country. An explosive report last week from Ronan Farrow in The New Yorker found that its director, Joy Ito, accepted nearly $2 million from Jeffrey Epstein, despite the university having listed him as a disqualified donor. Knowing this, Ito directed staff to scrub Epstein's name from donations to avoid scrutiny. Ito's ties to Epstein's were so widely known that the Media Lab staff in her office began to call him He Who Must Not Be Named, or Voldemort. In addition to making his own donations, Epstein allegedly helped steer $7.5 million to the lab from Bill Gates and private equity mogul Leon Black. Nice. And here's one that got the attention of the East Bay Times, which is quite a shill for the tech industry. It still comes from the week, however. They note that according to Annie Palmer in CNBC.com, hackers gain access to Twitter, Chief Executive Jack Dorsey's account, for 20 minutes last week. They used a surprisingly simple and increasingly popular tactic. The hackers were effectively able to steal Dorsey's mobile phone number through SIM swapping. A scammer calls a wireless carrier pretending to be the victim and requests the number be transferred to a new SIM card. 
A hacker who gets past a basic security hurdle, often just a birth date or mother's maiden name, can take over the phone number and use it to reset passwords or log into services like Twitter. In May, nine people from a hacking group were charged with using SIM swapping to steal $2.4 million in cryptocurrency. Some of the accused worked for AT&T and Verizon and allegedly were bribed to divulge phone numbers. This one has got the tech industry scared, and it's got us scared. And that's not all. It turns out that uh, the tech industry has had a lot of mysterious ads appearing on things like Facebook and Google in the Sacramento area. I mean, you know, these are the people that know your secrets, know your preferences, and package that up to sell you. Uh, Well, they know a lot about folks, and I'm pretty sure that whoever they're making these ad pitches to in um, the Sacramento area are people that might be able to change legislation. That is their goal. They want to relax a lot of these new regulations in place to protect uh, the security of the users. And, uh, well, we need to stay on the story. A lot of people need to stay on the story. This is dangerous stuff. Writing over a year ago about this, new scientists said that Facebook doesn't allow targeting directly based on psychological traits, but by finding correlations between things people have liked on the platform and traits, it's possible to switch between the two. And the truth is you only need to reach a tiny fraction of people to switch their opinions on an issue to change the world, certainly swing elections. We'll continue to follow this. Here's an item. I'm not sure where this this came from. I think it's the publication that's put out by uh, AAA, the auto insurer. I'm not sure. Anyway, the piece notes that it's a classic bit of advice for kids when crossing the street to tell them to make eye contact with drivers to make sure they see you before you cross. But what do you do when the car itself, and not a human inside, is doing the driving? This is just one of the many puzzling questions raised by the advent of autonomous vehicles, driverless cars. The piece notes that we're still years away from the time when self-driving cars, trucks, and buses will dominate our roadways. Yeah, let's hope. But but for kids who are in school today, such vehicles will eventually be more ho-hum than gee whiz. So says the AAA people. They close by saying, which makes us an excellent time to start teaching children how to stay safe on the streets even when there's no human driver to look in the eye. And how about driverless helicopters? The Economist sounded off about uh, small hovering craft which are being readied to fly people around cities. They noted that about 200 such craft are at various stages of development around the world according to experts at the first Global Urban Air Summit, which took place earlier this month. Uber, which runs an app-based taxi-hailing service, aims to start flying passengers in Dallas, Los Angeles, and Melbourne, Australia by 2023. Regulatory agencies in America and I presume Australia are still working out how to certify that these new aircraft are safe, particularly as many will be flown without pilots. These aircraft do have some common features. They are invariably electrically powered, which is good because, as we all know, electrical systems never fail. They do note that some are hybrids with a backup combustion engine. Yeah, that's that's the one I... Well, I'll never get on one, but if you ever get on one, dear listener, pick one with a backup engine. Now, I realize this stuff works pretty flawlessly in the Jetsons. I don't know. Yours truly finds this stuff very disturbing. I was in my backyard... Did I mention this in the show, Mr. McMillan? 
I don't believe so. You mentioned it to me, Howard. Okay, well, all right. It's time to mention everybody else. So I was out in my backyard with the neighbor. It was a hot night. We uh, had the pool uncovered. The moon was up. It was quite lovely in the backyard. It could scarcely be nicer than, uh, you know, being out enjoying one's living space in a, in, a, in, a, in a night of great weather, which unfortunately was interrupted by the hideous buzzing sound of some jackass in my neighborhood who was flying a drone over the property. It flew right over the property, like literally about 100 feet up. Now, I do want to know that nobody was naked in the backyard, but uh, I'm not against backyard nakedness, either in principle or practice. So I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to be in my backyard in the buff with a camera 100 feet above me looking down. I raced in the house to see if I could find my high-powered astronomy laser with which I intended to blind the camera on this infernal device. Unfortunately, I was unable to find it. My understanding is this doesn't actually blind the camera, but it uh, causes it to malfunction. And, well, at least it keeps you from looking down on you in your own yard. That was the idea. The real bummer was I have three such such lasers, and uh, suffice it to say, they've all been placed in ready-to-grab positions in case my neighbor decides to try this stunt again. You know, there's an old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. But these days, that's all turned around. These days, I think it's fair to say, invention is the mother of necessity. Just because they were able, by using, you know, small computer chips to put them on drones and keep the uh, keep the blades in sync so they're much much easier to fly than they would normally be just because we have such drones doesn't mean they should take over commerce we keep talking this program about Amazon and a lot of other people are really determined to uh, to airlift packages right to your doorstep it is my personal hope is my personal hope that if they get such an enterprise off the ground that people all across America will be taking shotguns to them Maybe it'd be a good time to note that that opinion, like all those heard in this program, does not necessarily represent that of this station. It sponsors the University of California, the Daughters of the American Revolution, the NAACP, the SPCA, or the World Wrestling Federation. No, folks, it's just me mouthing off. And I should clarify, perhaps, I do not advocate the discharging of shotguns in crowded urban areas. But if you live out in the country and Amazon sends one of these things over your property, I think you should stand your ground. By the way, when we talked about the launch of Sputnik on this program, which we did a long time ago, it was a subject we find interesting. There is a curious theory, not substantiated very much, but it's an interesting idea, that the U.S. wasn't in that big of a hurry to be the first one to get a satellite into orbit because of the issue of property rights and flying over sovereign nations. Now, you're in orbit. You're not f- technically flying in the Earth's atmosphere, but you are moving above territory. There were some who thought that the nations of the world would protest these overflights. When in 1957, the Soviet Union managed to accomplish this feat, the U.S. noticed that nobody was complaining. And as you might well imagine, within a few years, we <laughs> had huge telescopes orbiting the earth pointing down to take pictures of this or that and send the data back to our intelligence agencies. Of course, now it's moved from intelligence agencies to private corporations like Google, which have photographed 
all of our locations where we live and in most cases street views of where we live and nobody's griped. I mean, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope. We talked about some of its spectacular pictures on this program over the years. It's, it's a wonderful instrument. But when they went to make it, they basically took our spy satellites, improved it a little, or so they said, although it turned out they actually screwed it up. But nevertheless, it's basically one of our spy satellites that points outward at the heavens instead of downward at Moscow. It does seem hard to believe that they can read license plates from space, but they can. Anyway, questions of our individual privacy versus what the tech companies have on all of us is something we need to keep talking about. Although a lot of people think, hey, privacy is dead, gone, buried. If you're pining for it to come back, you may be in the position of uh, a guy that our L.A. correspondent Donald Rose cited. He was quoting a comedian whose name escapes me at the moment, who's poking fun at the idea of some particular thing coming back and saying, oh, yeah, 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 it's coming back, like Eddie Cantor's coming back. And for those of you upon whom that reference is lost, Eddie Cantor was a popular American comedian. He uh, was quite popular back in his day, but his day was back in like the 1940s. He's not coming back, and probably our privacy isn't either. But I do guess, Mr. McMillan, this gives us an opportunity to go out <laughs> with a new first on Radio Parallax, outro music featuring Eddie Cantor. My suggestion would be, if you knew Susie, I believe that was a big hit for Eddie. Anyway, that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I hope on next week's program we'll talk a little bit about uh, the Olympics and some shady maneuvers perpetrated by the Olympic hosts. With my neighbor, 105-year-old John Lissack. Hope you'll be around for that one. My name, Puddin' Tame. Actually, it's Douglas Everett. At least that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Susie, like I know Susie, oh, 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 what a girl, there's none so classy as this fair lassie, oh, 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 my goodness, what a chassis, we went riding, she didn't balk from the country, I'm the one that had to walk if you knew Susie, like I know Susie, oh, oh, what a girl. I have got a sweetie known as Susie.